Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. 1 Peter chapter 4. We are going to depart uh, from the 1 Samuel series for this morning. We'll return to that next week, God willing. 1 Peter chapter 4. Looking at verses uh, 12 through 19. Uh, if you've been watching the news here lately this week, you know that there were some pretty significant events that, that took place this past week. The uh, U.S. Supreme Court decided to overturn a provision, part of Uh, what is known as the Defense of Marriage Act, otherwise known as DOMA, D-O-M-A, Defense of Marriage Act. This act was passed by Congress in 1996 uh, by a pretty strong majority under the leadership of President Bill Clinton. And uh, one of the significant aspects of DOMA was that it upheld marriage as that which was between one man and one woman. And There are certain effects of that ruling now that observers are working through and thinking about, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to get into too much detail, but, um, and I want to be clear that I don't mislead in any way because there are some people who I think are reading maybe too much into this and they should. This ruling does not legalize marriage, uh, gay marriage nationally. Gay marriage is still legal in only 12 states plus Washington, uh, D.C. Uh, but, but here's one of the effects of this ruling. It, it, it basically withdraws federal protection for biblical traditional marriage and opens the doors now for further acceptance and normalization of same-sex marriage. Uh, we haven't seen all the effects of that now, but A lot of observers are expecting that that is what we're going to see happen in greater strides in the future months and years. And so there's a lot of people in the Christian community who are pretty alarmed about this, and they are responding with their comments. This is the U.S. uh, League of Catholic Bishops. They said it's a tragic day for marriage and our nation. Uh, As a result of this Supreme Court ruling, Russell Moore, one of the uh, leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention, as it says, as a result of the ruling, the legal and cultural landscape has now changed in this country. Uh, CBMW, it's Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, says this is a momentous week for the future of marriage in America. So I think what's happened is, is pretty significant. And the purpose of this sermon is, is not to... Uh, lay out a biblical understanding of marriage. And the reason why is because I did that about a year ago. Uh, It's been about 13 months since we've addressed this issue. But back in May, right before I went on sabbatical, actually, I uh, delivered a sermon on uh, a biblical response to same-sex marriage based on Genesis 1 and 2, the passage that we just heard a moment ago. Uh, So if you want more detail on that, I would just encourage you to go to the website. That, That sermon is there. Again, it's May 27th, 2012, not this past May, a year ago, and uh, you can hear that. But just as a brief overview, the, the case that I made at that time was, was this, that given the way God set up marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, we can draw certain conclusions, and three things mainly. One, 
that marriage is intended to be heterosexual. Hetero means different. Homo means same. God has set up marriage so that the genders who marry are different. He has established marriage as heterosexual. He also has established marriage as being complementary or complementarity as part of marriage. What that means is that male and female have been created to complement each other, to fit each other, to go together. Different, but they go together. That God didn't create a man to meet the man's need. He created a woman to meet the man's need. So complementarity seems to be at the essence of biblical marriage. And the third aspect of biblical marriage is fertility. We see that God designed man and woman to be together and to be married in order to procreate, um, to perpetuate the human race. And not just that, but there is a, a certain theological component to this. That is, God has created man and woman as his image bearers. He's created us so that we might project his image into all the earth. And one of the ways that his image grows and that he is glorified is in the way men and women come together and have families produce more image bearers who go into the earth and all the world bearing the image of God and bringing glory to him. So same-sex marriage seems to interrupt that, that foundational intent that God had in bringing man and woman together. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Again, if you want more detail on that, listen to that message. I did deal with common objections to the traditional view in that message, so you can hear that there. But, but what I want to help us to do today is to think about how we as Christians should respond to some of these changes that have been taking place in our culture. How should we respond? I don't think that we can afford to respond to this with, with indifference. Or, or apathy. Now, it, it could be that some of you might not even know really what I'm talking about. I know that a lot of you are busy and you're raising families and maybe you haven't watched the news, um, but that's one of the reasons why I want to do this sermon, because I want to inform you as, as best as I can. Um, but we can't afford to respond with indifference, because really what's going on here is that the fundamental building blocks of human civilization are being tampered with. I mean, I think that's pretty significant. And, you know, I, I'm not preaching this message because I'm trying to stir up trouble and be controversial. I just think the church needs to speak into this issue. It's a very public issue, and it is addressing uh, issues that the church holds dear and that the scriptures teach about plainly. So I don't think we can respond with indifference. And yet at the same time, I don't think we can respond with kind of an alarmist, overly emotional, angry outrage. Uh, we have to be careful that we think through this clearly and, and calmly. So maybe some of you have been following this or thinking, this is it. You know, the country is going down the tubes and you're just filled with despair right now. I, I want to caution you against that also. Uh, We've got to try to strike a balance. And that's what Peter, I think, helps us do here in First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. As we look through this little passage, we're going to see that Peter acknowledges that there's some bad news <laughs> For the church at this time, there are some significant challenges that they had to deal with. But in this passage, we also see some good news. And we see that the way the culture is going actually presents some pretty unique opportunities for us as a church. And so that's what we're going to think about today, just those two things, some bad news and some good, thing, good news. 
And uh, since I don't have the typical 45 verses to go through like we've had in 1 Samuel, uh, I can uh, read this aloud to us and have you stand for the reading of God's word um, as we read 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, would you please send your spirit to guide my words that the truth may be lovingly proclaimed and your church built up in faith, love, and holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, this is the book of, of 1 Peter, an epistle written by Peter. He is the Peter that you're probably thinking about, the Peter who was a disciple of Jesus, the, the same Peter who denied Jesus three times, the same Peter uh, to whom Jesus came to restore at the end of the book of John. Uh, that's the Peter who has written this uh, epistle. And he has written this probably in the years 62, 63 AD, so this would have been about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is writing this letter specifically to the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, he's writing it to a number of churches. We, we think he was writing to as many as ten different churches that were located in what is now known as Turkey. Uh, but the, the important thing here to understand is that what Peter is writing here is not to us individually. He, he's not talking about the fiery trial that comes upon us individually, the, the loss of a job or, or maybe a report of a disease of some sort. What Peter has in mind here is a fiery trial that's coming upon the church. And the reason I know that is because if you look at that word you, that pronoun you in verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Uh, you know, in the English language, we're a little bit limited because you is what we use to refer to singular and plural situations. If I speak to you as a church or if I speak to you, Todd, as an individual, I have to use the same pronoun, you. But in Greek, it's different. There's two different words for that. There's a you that refers to the plural and there's a you that's used as the singular. And this word you in verse 12 is for the plural. It's in the plural. So Peter is writing, not just to individuals, but he is writing to the church at large. And the purpose for the writing of this letter is to help the church trust in God and lean on him specifically in times of suffering. Suffering is a repeated theme in this book and especially in just these few verses here that I just read. Uh, let me show you an example. Just look at all these various references. First of all, verse 12. He's talking about a fiery trial. That sounds pretty, pretty heavy, pretty significant. 
Uh, in verse 13, he says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, he apparently assumes that those that he's writing to are suffering in a way that is similar to the way Jesus himself has suffered. Verse 16, let none of you suffer, excuse me, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. He does actually mention suffering in verse 15 as well. And then in verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator. You see this as a repeated theme in this passage. Peter is writing to these Christians expecting that they were a suffering people. And that's exactly what was true of the early church. In the first century, things were not easy for the Christian church. I mean, in America in the last couple of hundred years, things have been pretty easy for the church. It was not like that in the early centuries. The church went through a lot of persecution. If you look through the book of Acts, you, you see this mentioned repeatedly. I'm just going to go through a, um, a, a quick list here uh, as we look at uh, the, the bad news uh, I mentioned earlier. We're looking at bad news and good news. So this is, this is the bad news that the church was dealing with. Persecution in the book of Acts over and over again. For instance, chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, Peter and John arrested for preaching the gospel. This is the same Peter who wrote this epistle that we're looking at. Uh, chapter 5, 18, they're put in prison. Apostles together, preaching the gospel, they get imprisoned. Chapter 5, verse 40, they get beaten by the authorities. End of chapter 7, we have Stephen stoned to death, proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ, the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. In chapter 8, we have Saul coming on the scene. Saul, who was later converted and became Paul, before Saul was a Christian, he would go into the homes of Christians and drag them out and take them and put them in jail. That was Saul's main job, persecuting the Christian church in that way. Saul, again, becomes a Christian, becomes Paul. He starts preaching the gospel, and as a result of that, in chapter 20, a riot breaks out. People are so outraged at what Paul is saying about what Jesus Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection that a riot breaks out. And eventually, in chapter 21, Paul himself is arrested and imprisoned. A lot of bad news for the church in the first century. And this is uh, summed up in Hebrews chapter 11, as the writer refers to other forms of persecution. He says, Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Can you imagine that? Sawn in half. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. They were people of whom the world was not worthy. That's what the early church went through. Some severe, significant persecution. It's interesting also here that Peter says uh, in uh, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, to be insulted kind of pales in comparison to what we've just read about, but as Peter writes this, he apparently is aware that the Christians at that time were, were being insulted, that a lot of names were being hurled at them. Do you know that, that, that the early Christians were accused of being atheists? Because most people at that time believed in many gods, but Christians believed in just one god. So by believing in one god and not many, they rejected a whole pantheon of gods, and they were called atheists. The early Christians were called uh, were, were uh, said to be practicing incest. 
because they would talk about loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. People misunderstood that. They were accused of being anti-family because they would talk about the family of God and their love for the family of God, even to the point of sometimes prioritizing the family of God, even over their um, biological families. So they were accused of being anti-family. Early Christians were accused of being cannibals because they talked about feeding on the, bu- the body and the, the blood of Jesus. Of course, that was a reference to communion, but as the world heard that, they misunderstood it and insulted Christians by calling them cannibals. I present all this to you because I want you to know, uh, and, and I think we need to acknowledge that however things are going in this culture, it, it has certainly been a whole lot worse in times past. So if you're one of these people who think that things have never been as bad as they are now, and that this is the worst time in all of human history for the Christian church, that is just not true. Uh, Things have been a lot worse. There are a lot of other Christians who have faced fiery trials a lot more significant. But, 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 I would say that things are pretty serious in this current situation. And a lot of Christian observers who are looking at the way things are going in this culture are, are agreeing with that, that they're saying that, that there's something. It's not that things have never been this bad, but things have never quite been like this, that it's a unique situation, a fairly unprecedented time in, in human history. I mean, just think of this. Um, this was a point that Tim Keller made. Our General Assembly was last week. That's uh, the annual conference for our denomination. Two of the big leaders in our denomination are Tim Keller and Legan Duncan. And they were together talking about the way the church ought to relate to the culture, especially with everything that's going on. <clears throat> and Tim Keller made this point. He said, he said, think about what was considered to be the strongest enemy of freedom, like in the 1970s, which I know a lot of you weren't even around then, but for those of you who remember the 1970s, what what was considered to be the enemy of freedom at that time? Wasn't it communism, the Soviet Union and communism? And communism was always linked with atheism. So in an indirect way, atheism was considered to be a threat to freedom. You know what the threat to freedom is today? It's religion. It's theism. And the more devoted you happen to be to your God, the more of a threat you are. And that's not just for Christians, but for people of all different religions. In just less than 50 years, things have changed, so it's a complete 180. It used to be atheism was the problem. Now it's belief in God. Support for same-sex marriage has uh, increased rapidly. In 2008, it was 39% in the U.S. population. Today it's about 50%. So that's an 11% increase in just five years. So things moving quickly. Uh, Gay activists now, particularly in response to the ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court this week, are now predicting that in the next five years, gay marriage will be legal in all 50 states. That's their prediction. Now, that's probably a hopeful prediction. That's what they want to happen. Maybe it won't happen that fast, but uh, it, it seems to be headed in that direction. The situation's serious. I think there's reason to think that developments recently are are indeed bad news. And commentators and observers, as they reflect on the Supreme Court decision, are, are saying, what a lot of them are saying, is that there's particular concern about the wording of the majority opinion. Because the way the opinion was worded 
in overturning this part of the Defense of Marriage Act to, um, to recognize the legitimacy of same-sex marriage. The, the, the reasoning that went into that was something like this. Some of the words that were used were like this. It was, here's the problem. It's, it's those that passed the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996 recognizing traditional marriage, that that is something that is demeaning and dishonoring to gay people, and it humiliates their children. You know, that's not exactly what you would consider legal kind of language, but, but that's kind of part of the reason that's coming through. In other words, the concern here is that to hold to traditional marriage is now becoming more and more... Um, uh, uh, an insulting and unacceptable position for anybody to hold. And as this wording and as the certain terms that are being used in this wording start to infiltrate the culture, it's going to get to the point where those who hold to biblical traditional marriage are going to be viewed more and more as being part of the problem. That's what a lot of people are saying. And the concern now is what is going to happen if this gains traction and we as Christians and people who hold to traditional marriage are viewed more and more as people who want nothing but to humiliate homosexuals. If that starts to gain traction, then the concern is what is this going to do to religious liberty in, in this country? How is that going to be changing in the future? And so here's, here's the bad news. Here, here's some predictions, and, I, and I'm not saying these things are necessarily going to happen, but those who observe carefully and who are knowledgeable of cultural shifts are, are saying things like this, that it very well could be that churches might end up losing tax-exempt status. That, that might happen before too long. That um, there will be further perversions of sexuality in the family that will be promoted in the culture and accepted, that there will be an increased stigma upon you and me for being Christians and just holding to the traditional view of marriage, that, that we're going to be increasingly marginalized and ostracized from society. The Christian church used to be in a place of preeminence. You know, we were respected it was an, a culturally, socially advantageous thing to be part of the church. That's completely changing now. We are looked at by a lot of people in the culture as the problem. And just as, as right now, we might look at a white supremacist and just think, oh, you are just the most socially backward and offensive person I can think of. And then that would be, I think, pretty much a correct response to that. But we're getting to the point where it could be in five or ten years that a Christian is viewed in the exact same way as a white supremacist is today. Just somebody whose views are just intolerable. Marvin Olasky is saying, pastors and teachers, you need to be thinking about what you're going to say when you're hauled into court for speaking out against homosexuality. And I guess i got to start thinking about that. Russell Moore, the guy I quoted earlier, from the Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention, says, here's what's going to happen. Over the coming years, if, if you see a young family, a young man and woman married and raising kids, that the culture is going to look at that as something freakish. That just a regular nuclear family 
mom, dad, and kids, is, is going to be weird and strange because the culture is drifting so far from recognizing this as a normal way for human civilization to flourish. These are all bad news. This is the bad news. And you might be saying to yourself, you know, okay, well, Bob, you're just speculating. You're, you're, you're being alarmist. You're, you're just uh, dreaming up these things. We don't know that those things are going to happen. Well, I'll tell you this. Already, here's what's happened. In Massachusetts, where same-sex marriage has been legalized, a group called Catholic Charities of Boston, which has been in the practice of helping orphan children find adoptive parents, they have had to stop that service because it is against their conviction to place children with a same-sex couple. And because same-sex marriage is legal in Massachusetts, if they practice adoption, they would have to do that. They would have to put children in same-sex homes. They're not willing to do that, so they just shut it down. They don't do adoptions anymore. That, that, that's an example of how religious freedom seems to be getting curtailed. But, but I would say this also, just standing back and looking at this from a theological viewpoint, here's the biggest problem, I think. Theologically speaking, the biggest problem with same-sex marriage is that it obscures the gospel. It does. It interferes with our understanding of the gospel because a marriage is a walking, talking illustration of the gospel. That's why God set it up that way. He designed it to be a picture of the gospel. He, he called a, a, a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Just as we as the church are united to Jesus through faith and the two have become one in this mysterious way, so does marriage picture the same thing. A man and a woman are brought together in a mysterious way and the two shall become one because it's a picture of Jesus and his bride. And I'm not just making that up. That's not speculation. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that this refers to Christ and the church. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. It communicates the gospel. And to the degree that marriage is reinvented and tampered with, the very purpose that God created it is obscured and confused. So, I mean, there's a lot of bad news there, you know, and I know you're probably all depressed now, but, but what, what is Peter's response to this? This is what I find just so fascinating. How does Peter respond to this? What does he say at the very start of verse 12? Do not be surprised. Don't be surprised, friends, that this is happening, that the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I, mean, I think most of us think, this is really strange. Same-sex marriage being legalized in all these states, that's so strange. Peter says, it's not strange. It's not weird that the culture is moving in this direction. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says the world, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, that unbelievers are following the course of this world, that they're under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. They're laboring under a delusion and an illusion. They're, they're lost in confusion and the futility of their minds. 
And that's the way things are going to continue until Jesus comes back to make everything right. And so in the meantime, when these kinds of bizarre developments happen, Peter says, don't, don't be surprised. And in fact, he goes on to say, you know what? There's actually some good news here. There are some things for us to be excited about as a church. There, is, there are unique opportunities for us as a church given the, cultural, the current cultural climate. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, now. Uh, I got five things, five pieces of good news, five good opportunities. Um, And it all begins in verse 13 because not only does Peter say, don't be surprised, he also says this rejoice. (laughs) The fiery ordeal has come upon you, church, and here's your response. It shouldn't be outrage, it shouldn't be despair, it shouldn't be anger, it shouldn't be a desire for revenge. It should be a desire to rejoice. Are you ready to do that in in response to what's going on? Why should we rejoice? Because five things. One, we have an opportunity to glorify God. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When people call you a bigot and a hypocrite and demeaning and self-righteous, they call you those names, and there's no good reason for them to call you those names because notice what he says in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. I mean, if if you're doing wrong, if you're disobeying God and you suffer, well, you you probably should be suffering is what Peter is saying. But if you are not, if you are obedient to God and you suffer simply because you are standing up for what the Bible says and you're standing up for the name of Christ, you are blessed in that time. And the Spirit of God rests upon you in a powerful way and the glory of God is manifest in your life. That's what Peter is saying. Isaiah 11, 2, it talks about, it's a prophecy of the Messiah, and it says the Spirit of God will rest upon him. It's like Peter is using that same language to say in the same way that the Spirit of God rested on Jesus Christ in his ministry, so does the Spirit of God rest upon you when people insult you for the name of Christ. Jesus says this, Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice in that. And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. We have a great opportunity to glorify God in responding to the insults that we might receive in a gracious and kind way. Here's another advantage. Faith, our faith. We have the opportunity to see our faith strengthened. Look in verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, it says. That this image of fire here, what fire is typically used for is to refine and to purify. It's a way to burn away the impurities of a, of a, of a special metal, for instance. And this is what Peter has in mind, that this fiery trial that comes upon you is come upon you to burn away the impurities. And remember, we're talking about the church at large, not just individuals. So what Peter is saying is that this is one way that the church is purified. In other words, when the church comes under fire and under persecution and it's challenged and threatened, that is one of the ways that God weeds out false professions of faith. 
the, the, the fakers, you know, the ones who are coming and professing to believe because of the social advantages that they might get for being part of a church. You know, again, we've been in a place of preeminence in this culture for a long time so that it's been considered socially advantageous to be part of the church. So there's a lot of reasons that people come to a church. You know, they want to make business contacts. They want to meet friends. And, you know, just a lot of people go there, so I guess I'll go there too. But when going to church starts to become something that threatens your livelihood or your reputation, then you start to see who are really committed to Christ. The fakers begin to get weeded out. The genuine Christians begin to rise to the surface. We've seen many examples of this in the past where persecution tends to be a way that God grows his church, strengthens his church. Another advantage for us, good news, is that there's an opportunity for us to to do good in a way that can make a very powerful witness for the gospel. Look at verse 19. He says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Those who suffer, those who are going through this fiery trial where it might be a temptation for us to say, look, I'm suffering too much. I'm just going to kind of check out. But what Peter says is while you're suffering, continue to do good. And that's the challenge to us as a church. If suffering continues for the church, we begin to get persecuted. We get increasingly maligned and insulted. That's the opportunity for us to step up and do good to those who are treating us in that way. And in particular, here's a question that I think we as a church need to ask. How can we do good to the gay and lesbian community? How can we bless them? How can you do good to the gays and lesbians that you know in your neighborhood, in your family, at the workplace? How can you reach out to them? How can you bless them? Friends, they are not the enemy. And we need to refrain from the temptation to speak disparagingly of them. We need to refrain from the temptation to demonize them. That they are people like you and me. They are made in God's image. And they are longing for acceptance and love. They're longing for a place in this world. And they're doing it in the best way they know how. And we need to be sympathetic to that. And not see them as the enemy to be attacked, but people to whom we can do good. I mean, just as an example of this, Mary and I happen to have a same-sex couple that live next door to us, and uh, my wife happens to make really great pies, and so she made a pie, and we took it over, and knocked on the door, and gave them the pie, and said, gave them our number, said, please give us a call if there's anything we can do. We'd you know, love to help you, show you around the neighborhood, whatever, and turned around and went home, so... No big deal. (laughs) Nothing momentous about that. But I think it's the beginning of establishing a relationship with them. Uh, I hope that they can see that we're not out to humiliate or demean them. It's not my desire. But I would like them to know that there's a better way to live in accordance with the way God has designed them. So there's an opportunity for us to do good. I'm going to quote Russell Moore here again from the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, he says this, a gloomy, slouching toward Gomorrah view of culture leads, I think, to meanness. If we think we're on the losing end of the arc of history, we slide into outrage. 
If we see ourselves, though, as part of a kingdom that is triumphant in Christ, we ought to display a kind of provocative tranquility. We see those who disagree with us not as threatening to us or to our gospel, but those who, like all of us were, are held captive to an accusing power. So let that be a motivation to us as we seek to do good, even if we have to suffer. One other, no, two other things. Opportunities. This is an opportunity for us as a church to get our house in order. By that I mean verse 17, kind of a chilling verse here. Verse 17 says, It is time for judgment to begin with those who are trying to overturn traditional marriage. Is that what it says? For it is time for judgment to begin with all the liberals. It doesn't say that. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment begins with us. Judgment begins with the church. The push for same-sex marriage is not the only threat to traditional marriage, friends. Just as much of a threat to traditional marriage is unbiblical divorce and cohabitation, couples living together before they're married, emotional affairs at work, workaholism that keeps husbands and wives away from home and away from each other and away from their kids, verbal and physical abuse that takes place in the household. These things take place in the church. These are just as much a threat to traditional marriage as is same-sex marriage. These are just as much a diversion and aberration and perversion of sexual marriage as is is same-sex marriage. And we need to acknowledge that and repent of it. Ross Douthat says this. I think I shared this quote in the sermon I did 13 months ago. One reason the Christian insistence on chastity for homosexuals seems particularly cruel and unreasonable is that the Christian churches no longer successfully hold up heterosexual chastity as a clearly defined, successfully lived out ideal. And that's particularly important, I think, now because given what I said earlier, remember I mentioned that Russell Moore said it could be um, we could get to the point where a, a husband and wife with kids is seen as something freakish? Not only might be seen as something freakish, it also might end up being a very powerful testimony for the gospel, just simply to be married with kids. <laughs> that that alone might send a message to the culture that there is something very different about you. People will look at you and think you're a Christian just because you are faithful to your wife and husband and you have children. <laughs> that, that's where we're headed. But there's an opportunity there in just following the directions of Scripture in witnessing to our culture. One last thing, there's an opportunity here to be like Christ. There's an opportunity to be like Jesus because verse 13 says, Rejoice. I mentioned that earlier, the command to rejoice, but it goes on. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. We have a suffering Savior. This Savior came and gave himself for us. He died on the cross. He shed his blood. He entered into a lifetime of suffering to save you and me and to redeem us. And he has redeemed us not just so that we can be saved, but so that we can be conformed into his image. 
And if we are to be conformed into the image of a suffering Savior, it very well might be the case that we are going to be called to suffer. And my question to you is, I'm not trying to alarm you, I'm not trying to scare you, I just think it's a question we need to ask as Christians, given all that I showed you in the first century of the church. Are you ready to suffer for Jesus? Are, are, are you ready to be insulted just because you're a Christian? Are, are you ready to not get the job that you want just because you're a Christian? Are, are you ready for people who used to be your best friend to not want to hang out so much anymore because you're a Christian and you're one of those people who demeans and humiliates homosexuals? That, that very well could be the case. But what Peter is saying is that if you are suffering in the way that Christ suffered, if you're sharing in his sufferings, then, friends, you, you ought to rejoice in that because you are never more like Jesus than when you are suffering for his sake. Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles, they're put in prison, they're beaten, and it says, chapter 5, verse 41, that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. They rejoiced in that. They considered it good news that they were called to suffer. You know, I don't know. I don't want to go to jail. And I don't know if that's going to happen, but I do want to suffer well if I have to. And, and that's my prayer. And I would covet your prayers for me in that regard as your prayers for all of us as we seek uh, increasing pressures on us from our culture. Well, let me just conclude by exhorting us as a congregation to make this all a matter of prayer. We, we need to pray about this, friends. You need to pray for those in leadership. You need to pray for President Obama. I don't know what you think of the man. You might hate the man, but you need to pray for the man because you've been commanded to do that. In 1 Timothy, pray for your leaders. Pray for the Indiana State Legislature because next year they're going to begin taking up the issue of same-sex marriage in January. Pray for them. Pray for wisdom for our elected representatives. Pray for revival in the church. Pray that God sends his Holy Spirit in a powerful way to change hearts, to grow the church, to cause the church to humble themselves in the face of our own sin that many people in our communities would be convicted and they would come fleeing to the church looking for relief for them sins and looking and seeing Jesus as beautiful and embracing him and loving him and rejoicing. That's happened in the past. There have been outpourings of the Holy Spirit where there have been hundreds and thousands of conversions and we can plead with God to do that. You know, it's not too late. It is not a foregone conclusion that the culture is going to continue to go in the direction that it is because God can change hearts, and he often uses the prayers of God's people to do that. We can pray, pray that God would do this. And you know what? Do not be surprised if God does something and reverses the whole trajectory of where our culture is headed. We can do that tonight, actually, you know. We've got a prayer service at 6 o'clock. It would be a good time to get together and start. But whether God changes things or not, here's one thing we know from our passage. The day is coming when we are going to rejoice and be glad when the glory of Jesus is revealed. That day is coming, and we plead with him to come soon. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word and the instructions from Peter. Um, God, please help us. We want to navigate this situation in a way that honors you, in a way of, of, of wisdom and grace. But we want to be strong. We want to stand on your truth. But we want to be tender and kind. It's so hard to strike the balance. Help us to do it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.